Folks, this is the 50th episode of Learn Based Dance. 50th. I never would have thought that there were so many Bayesian nerds out there in the world when I first interviewed Osvaldo Martin more than two years ago. And to celebrate that random, crazy adventure, I wanted to do a special episode at any random point. And so it looks like it's going to be number 50. And this episode is special by its guest, not its number. Although my guest knows a thing or two about numbers. Most recently, for instance, he wrote the book COVID by Numbers, a mathematical statistician dedicated to helping the general public understand risk, uncertainty, and decision-making. He's the author of several books, actually, on this topic, including The Art of Statistics. You may also know him from his podcast, Risky Talk, or his numerous appearances in newspapers, radio, and TV shows. So, did you guess who it is? Or maybe you just know him as the rainy world champion in loop, a version of pool played on an elliptical table, and you are just discovering now that he's a fantastic science communicator, something that turns out to be especially important for stats education in times of, I don't know, let's say global pandemic, for instance. He holds a PhD in mathematical statistics from the University of London and has been the chair of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at Cambridge University since 2016. And he was also the president of the famous Royal Statistics Society in 2017-2018. And most importantly, he was featured in BBC One's Winter Wipeout in 2011. Seriously, go check that out on his website. It's hilarious. So, did you guess who it is yet? My guest for this episode is no other than Sir David Spiegelhalter. Yes, the are Bayesian Knights. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 50, recorded September 2, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alexandra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.com. That's learnbasestats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Abazian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. Abazian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. well it really is a one-of-a-kind episode because i get to welcome three new members in the lbs patreon 
this is a tremendous help to pay for editing, manage the LBS community and just improve the show in general. So I want to sincerely thank my new patrons, especially those in the full Pusera tier or higher. This time I'm talking about the wonderful Luis Iberico, Alejandro Morales and Tomas Frida. Okay, you've heard me enough now. Let's talk science communication with David Spiegelhalter. Sir David Spiegelhalter, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I'm, I'm really happy to, to have you on the show for like a, a broader than usual show, uh, which is what I like to do from time to time, not not into the weeds of the Bayesian statistical models, but thinking about the way human think about uncertainty and risk uh, and so on, which is actually related to Bayesian statistics, but absolutely in the weeds than, than usual. But let's stay on our usual plan. I always ask the guest as a first question about their background. So how did you come to the stats and the risk worlds? What's your story, basically? I did maths at school. I didn't know what I really wanted to do. So I went to do maths at university, went to Oxford, and uh, I didn't do applied maths, but I really liked the pure maths. But by about the second year, it got, frankly, too difficult. Everyone everyone bangs their head on, on some sort of mathematical ceiling, I think. Hmm. Mine came about halfway through the second year. And I was unbelievably fortunate. I'm sure everybody says that that they had an inspired teacher. And mine was Professor Adrian Smith, or Dr. Adrian Smith, who's is only a few years older than us, really, as students. But he was uh, the uh, what's called a tutor in our Oxford College. And he just got me unbelievably enthused about probability and statistics. Now, right at that time, he was translating... De Finetti's theory of probability from Italian into English. The first time the whole book had been translated into English. So he was the translator with a, an Italian colleague. And so he was absolutely up to his eyeballs in De Finetti and subjective probability and so on. And he just indoctrinated us with this as sort of 18, 19-year-olds. We hmm. just, you know, I remember sitting in the pub having impassioned arguments and discussions about what probability actually was and what was the basis for the subjects that we were learning at that time. And this is extraordinary privilege to have this insight and the sort of inspiration and the um, the ideas that have never left me. So that was 50 years ago, essentially. When I first started, when I first met him, I met him 50 years ago. Now he's president of the Royal Society, Professor Sir Adrian Smith and, and all that kind of stuff. So he's very eminent. But I still, you know, express my gratitude to him for introducing me into these basic ideas. And um, there were, we were learning about Frank Ramsey. We were learning about the obviously decision theory. Um, but... And, and being unbelievably critical of the standard classical frequentist probability theory that we were essentially being taught within our statistics classes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems that I think it's uh, actually quite rare among my guests that you were introduced to Bayesian statistics really early in your in your background. I knew the Bayesian stuff before I knew the classical, really. So that was, hmm. I think, it is very rare. 
And yeah. most people come to it late and have this sort of um, conversion, you know, like, like St. Paul and, uh, and then become even, <laughs> tend to become, of course, you know, like all new converts and uh, become even more dedicated to the cause. Yeah. Whereas I was in, you know, I would say indoctrinated, but introduced to it right from the very beginning of my career. And so I had to learn the classical stuff afterwards, which I found extremely curious, really. And um, no, I've always found it. So I spent my whole career in statistics essentially juggling these two perspectives. I'm very ecumenical in the techniques I use, which we'll come on to later. But, you know, scratch me and give me a little scratch. And down underneath, you'll find this absolutely reconstructed subjectivist at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that that's definitely funny. Um, and really, I think among my 50 guests on the podcast, only one of them, if I remember correctly, Elisaveta Semenova had the same experience. So definitely rare. It's that Bayesian statistics were your default. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, next time you're talking about um, probabilities and statistics and Bayesian stats in a pub with a beer, uh, call me, like, I mean, beer, beer? And Bayesian stats, that sounds awesome. Uh, exactly. I, yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> okay, and and so now, like fast forward 50 years, how do you define what you're doing nowadays? Because you work on a lot of different topics. So yeah, what do you do? And maybe how does that relate to Bayesian statistics? Okay, yeah, that, that is a really big question. Now, I, I don't do much analysis now. I do a bit of R programming, you know, a bit of a, a bit of simple stuff on COVID data. And the stuff I do is, it tends to be very classical. You know, I just, I'm fitting models and uh, and doing all the standards, absolutely standard stuff. I'm not doing complex Bayesian modeling myself now. But my main work is in, is in communicating about statistics and communicating ideas about, you know, what we can learn from data. Now, and I, I must well say, you know, I've got this book out, Art of Statistics, which is sold very well, and which I try to actually sort of espouse the philosophy that I've kind of picked up. And one aspect of that is that so much of statistical stuff you can get through without introducing probability theory without having to deal with these really difficult ideas of what what is probability you know who knows actually you know we can it's such a in a contested area but you can actually do a huge amount of statistics without getting to that you know all ideas of of bias of selection effects of you know essentially random sampling of good design of confounding of all these ideas which are generic across whatever statistical view you have are absolutely important you know and what does the numbers actually mean do they represent what you think they represent all the manipulations about how to present that data and all those things they're all generic and and actually cover a huge amount of what you want to do in your communication so the bayesian stuff itself doesn't come too much into it except in my mind all the time as soon as we start talking about risk i basically have the idea, which I'm very happy to is that these risks do not exist. You know, there's no such thing as your risk of getting cancer, your risk of it. Even this coin coming up heads, there's no such thing as its probability. Um, these, the, any numbers that you ascribe to probabilities are constructed on the basis of arguments, of belief, of evidence. There is no true underlying number there. Um, that 
that we are attempting to discover. So, you know, basically, I think that all probabilities are assessed. They're not really estimated because they don't exist out there in the external world, except possibly at the subatomic level. But we're not dealing with that issue, which we might consider as determined, unconditional probabilities. But otherwise, all probabilities are conditional. They're all based on judgments. They're all not essentially properties of the outside world. They're much more, they're they're to do with our understanding of the outside world. They're to do with our relationship with the outside world. And those basic subjectivist Bayesian ideas, which I've held all the time, are incredibly important and very valuable when we're dealing with talking about the risks of COVID, the risks of, of, um, uh, you know, of dying if you get infected and so on. Because, these no, there's no such thing as these risks. These risks don't exist at an individual level. Who knows what you know? What does it mean even to say what your, what your risk is if it gets if you get um, infected? We can talk about broad averages. We can talk about proportions. We can talk about I, my favourite way of discussing this always is what we would expect to happen in a hundred people of who matched these criteria. So essentially. What I've come to after many years is actually one of the best ways to describe probabilistic judgments is through a frequency metaphor, which is what it means for 100 people or even at an individual level out of 100 possible ways things might turn out in how many of them do you expect something to happen. And, And that's based on, you know, extensive psychological research that that embedding in what does it mean for 100 people like you is one of the most powerful and good ways to communicate numbers, probabilities, risks to people. And it's a very, and it of course opens itself up to very nice visualizations in terms of a hundred little grid of a hundred icons or whatever. So the anomaly partly is that in order to communicate what I am convinced are, are just judgments, are conditional judgments that we make, actually a frequency format is one of the best ways to do it. Yeah, lots of interesting things here. Definitely we had like, I, I had a, a discussion about that uh, recently with the my fellow car developers of the of the PyMC package, uh, where I usually like because I I do uh, a lot of electoral forecasting and often use the like the model is using Markov chain Monte Carlo, so it's doing a lot of simulations and yeah. to help people non-stats people understand what that means. I often use that this metaphor of different universes where like, yeah. the the model is is simulating different elections in parallel universes. Yep, I like that metaphor. I use it in my book. And I think people can, uh, you know, get this idea of, you know, the the whole future, you know, has all these possible branches going out. We don't know which one of these is going to occur. So these are all possible universes, possible, possible futures. And in a certain proportion, something's going to happen. In a certain proportion, something's not going to happen. And, and what's nice about, of course, Monte Carlo methods is that it, it makes that kind of metaphor very concrete. It is the basis on which you get these numbers. And that's why spaghetti plots and other ways of showing all these possible futures, I think, is such a powerful, or ensemble modeling in in weather forecasting or in climate, is such a powerful way because the actual computational method also is the right, I believe, sort of philosophical metaphor for communicating these things. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna lie, and it's it has opened a debate inside inside the team that we could have had uh, in a pub if if only we hadn't had been all remote. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely a, a debate, and I think Eric Ma was the one who pointed me to the fact that it's ironic because it's kind of a 
frequentist way of explaining how the Bayesian statistic work. Absolutely, but it's not a frequentist interpretation yeah. in that it's, it's, it's a metaphor, it's an analogy or whatever to describe the thing. It's not actually what the probabilities mean. These you, We can't have repetitions of unique events in any sort of you know sensible way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I want to point out that uh, you... You hosted a, a podcast, I don't know if you still do that, but the, the Risky Talk podcast, yeah, yeah. Uh, where where you talked about that. Uh, I recently listened to, to an episode where uh, you had some guests and talking about ways to to communicate around like crime numbers, immigration numbers, and also political polls. So I was particularly interested in that. And uh, yeah, I recommend people to, uh, to listen to that. It's also something that I have to do all the time, especially in... in uh, election periods like these ones like right now in, in France and so that's definitely something interesting but I sometimes feel like it's almost like another job a job adjacent to being a statistician or a modeler you know like you have like sometimes I have my modeler hat and then I have to take another hat to explain the model and the statistics and so on. And it's almost different skills. Uh, it is it is a range of skills. And I, I, I hope that in the future, people cannot complete a course in statistics education without doing communication. Yeah. I think it's, and, and not just visualizations, although there's an absolutely important part, but the whole language of communicating to not the people who are not just your technical colleagues. So, you know, the moment it's appalling that I think statistics education is geared up to writing statistical papers, academic papers. And that's the language we're taught to use. And that's, and that's the way we, we do these report things. And that is so, I don't know, arrogant and uninclusive. It's actually, I think, you know, really shocking that that's how I was educated and that's how people are still educated because you know, why do you do statistics? I don't do it for academics. I couldn't, you know, who cares? I do it to, for the benefit of, of society, for, for people, people I don't know and people who don't understand what I've done. And I think it's an absolute duty to communicate in as clear and an unambiguous way as possible. You can never do it perfectly. It's always inadequate, but it's, and there are different levels you can do it at. And I think it's, it is such an important skill. And I believe, you know, the two elements that are missing from statistics education that I believe will become an integral part of it is communication and ethics. And I think that those both should be integral courses in any good statistics degree now. Yeah, although I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's realistic to expect like all statisticians to have all the different skills. Like I'm, nope. I'm, I'm more thinking from a macro level where you should have statisticians who are really good at modeling and like really good at math and and doing that, and then you have other statisticians who are able to take that math, that models, explain maybe by those models and parse it through to the general Those public. people cannot do very well at those modules. It doesn't mean that, you know, just like some people don't do so very well at the very mathematical modules, but might excel at other parts of it. So absolutely right. No, not everyone's going to be able to do everything. Some people are is more skilled at communication at adapting their language. To, I yeah. know that some statisticians find it unbelievably difficult, having spent years training themselves to use language that are unbelievably precise and technical manner yeah. to then you know i will never use the term confidence interval or credible interval or anything i just just won't use them now in any communication i'll just say an uncertain i might say an uncertainty interval or a margin of error or something like that and uh, and i won't get to go into trying to explain exactly what they mean either unless some because frankly nobody cares outside mm -hmm. that. but i i can 
you should be able to, and you should be able to know the difference between a confidence interval and a credible interval. And you should know, of course, that they're all wrong. One of the crucial things about all confidence intervals and credible intervals is that they are wrong because they're based on the assumption that the model is correct and the model is wrong. And so that's, I think, an integral part of the communication is to realise the deep limitations and inadequacies of every modelling exercise that we do and to have that humility about it in our communication. Yeah, I heard that and I actually agree with that. But then what I notice is doesn't that open the, the door to kind of like complete relativism of everything like yeah, with I, people saying oh then if your models are wrong then we yeah, can think yeah. whatever we want okay. because science is wrong so my yeah. opinion is uh, just as wrong but I con- prefer using that absolutely and and another aspect of that argument which we get all the time is is when we say that you should admit the uncertainties um, both about within model uncertainties and you know uncertainty about the whole modeling process people say oh my goodness well if we do that no one will trust us no one will believe us they'll go and just follow somebody who says oh i know exactly what's going to happen or what's going on yeah and they just say that's an appalling state of affairs if you really cannot be honest you have to be dishonest in terms of your over egging your certainty in order and that is such a shocking state if it were true that you should be ashamed of yourselves and and the whole you know, organization, the whole context, every, everybody should be ashamed of that. But is it actually true? And we're actively researching that idea. And all our research shows that if you acknowledge uncertainty in, and you're actually sort of confident about your lack of confidence, you, you actually are upfront and say, look, yeah. it's impossible to know everything about this. We, we, this is what we know, but this is also what we don't know. There is no, we see no reduction in the trust in the source of the information from that. And that's from lay people, not necessarily just you know, technical people who might, I, my, my trust increases if somebody admits their uncertainties about it. But, and you can't, that's perhaps expecting a bit much. Our you know, empirical research suggests it's okay to do it and you should be doing it. The crucial thing then is how do you do it? And that's what I'm very, really interested in. What, what sort of language of uncertainty can you use that is honest and, and has the appropriate humility about it, but also is one that people do engage with? <laughs> you know, for example, our research seems to suggest that if just using the words estimate seems to make no difference to anyone at all. Nobody actually grasps that means it's a way of expressing uncertainty about something. I still think it's the number, you know, that's the number. It doesn't seem to change people's perception of the accuracy of the number that you're giving. So um, that's why we really encourage to people to give ranges or some sort of idea of a distribution. You know, that really clarifies yeah. things for people. Yeah, it's definitely what I do too when I communicate around polls and polling models, and etc. Like not giving only the, the mean, but like a, a range of uncertainty and being very clear. And as you say, I, I like this. Uh, this idea of being confident in your uncertainty and like when when people go on Twitter and, and talk about those polls that are wrong and, and misguided, etc. And, and then my models were useless, blah, 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 because yeah, polls yeah. are wrong. Yeah. Like pointing out the fact that actually, yeah, like we are all uncertain about yeah. how this is going to happen. You have to, as I said, some people will always, will always say, the skeptics will always say, oh, well, you know, essentially, oh, well, you can't tell us exactly what's going to yeah. happen, therefore you don't know anything. But, the, you know, this is so clearly not 
nonsensical that any, I think any any audience with any you know genuine interest will re- see through that. And but well, again, one needs to make clear that you know for start you know start with what you do know rather than what you yeah. don't know, and crucially to emphasise that you know just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. We actually yeah. know a huge amount. We can say we can con- and we can rule out X, Y, Z. We can say no, this is just this is just not feasible. But where there is still deep uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty, and I mean it, it, we're living through it at the moment. This pandemic because pandemics are unbelievably non-linear and uncertain, and so I think it's very healthy that people at the you know, in the UK at the moment and other birds and well, we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, huge uncertainties, and you got to be honest about it. Yeah, I love that, and it actually relates to something I wanted to to ask you about. It's um, like it reminds me of um, a common a, a problem we had in France, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, but still now a bit was really people not being able to see the difference between science and research. And and so this is something that, I don't know if you know Etienne Klein, but he's a, a very well-known physicist and, and someone who very also versed into epistemology in France. And he made this distinction between science, that's what we know, and research, that's science in the making. That's the questions about what we don't yet know. But there is these, these bases which we call science of things we do know, like uh, subatomic particles exist, like the, 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 the Earth revolves around the sun, the Earth is round, blah, blah, blah. And then you can't really put it into question unless you have really strong evidence that it's false. And then you have research, which are the, the questions we are still asking and want to answer. So I'm curious about what you think about yeah, that. Yeah, it's quite nice. I, I, noticed, I never thought of a distinction in that way between science and research, although using those terms, but I really quite like, because it is saying, well, this is what we do know, what we all agree, can all yeah. agree with, where there's no reasonable you know, disagreement about these issues. But on these issues, there is reasonable disagreement, and this is still... No, so I think whatever language one uses, terms one uses, um, I think that's very important. And the, and the other thing is, of course, you know, we're talking about the scientific method that, you know, this is no, they may be contested, but it doesn't mean it's just open for argument, you know, where anyone's hmm. anyone's um, argument goes. We're talking here about the scientific method and, and evidence. And that's where statistics, you know, frankly, is unbelievably important because we are, we're people who should know about evidence. And, you know, we've become sort of the evidence policeman, which I think is a bit of a shame, but that we shouldn't, you know, be seen just in that rather negative role. But we know about evidence and that's what we should be able to be skilled at, I think, is communicating both the the what we know and the limitations of the evidence. And that's, I guess, what I'm now slightly obsessed with trying to work on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm truly curious about that, like how, you know, in light of what we we saw with the, with the COVID pandemic, I'm wondering if this pandemic changed your thinking about all these, like about how people relate to risk and uncertainty. And also, did it reveal flaws or misconceptions in your conceptions of, of how the general public think about risk? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so in a way, I, I more, I more, I do it the communication, or I do some amount of study. My colleagues study it to to a larger extent, but I, I'm more, I'm a practitioner really yeah. on on this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do it, and um, I hope, and I haven't got empirical evidence for this, so this is purely a subjective hope, is that 
the general public have been bombarded with such a vast amount of scientific and statistical information over the last 18 months. And they've seen scientists arguing, and they've seen, you know, people making claims that then don't turn out to be true. They've seen people making extremely good judgments. I actually, and certainly within the UK, trust in scientists has always been very high and has held up hugely, unbelievably well Hmm. over the pandemic. The general trust in scientists, trust in politicians is always very low and and hasn't, has got even lower, I think. So the scientific community, which I think on the whole, either through people acknowledging uncertainty or through just disagreement, has shown itself to be not just a, a body of of facts, of black and white statements about this is true, this is what you should do, has shown itself, I think, to be uncertain, to about what's going to happen, or even what's best or what's going on. And and people, that hasn't led to, you know, widespread rejection of, of the scientific community. And, you know, some of the best trusted communicators in the UK are, are extremely good at saying what they don't know. Uh, saying what the uncertainties are, but uh, and so and this has not led to widespread distrust. So, uh, my hope is that actually audiences will have become much more sophisticated. I think the amount of they they definitely have become more sophisticated in their appetite and their willingness to take on graphs and numbers and so on. Newspapers wouldn't would they've never even put a line graph in a popular newspaper before, and hmm. now even in you know reason real sort of popular, pretty down-market newspapers were getting graphs all over the place. They'd never have seen those before the pandemic. So I think the sophistication of the media and the, audi- and the audiences has grown hugely. And, and, and that puts, that gives me some optimism. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. I love uh, hearing that. That's something to, to have in mind for, for the future. But I'm wondering too, like more generally, like which progress do you think science communicators should make for i don't know the next big uncertain event that we encounter all of us like what do you think are the things we can learn from from what we uh, we've been through the, the last year and and try oh, to improve? I, don't know. I think i can only really talk about what i've learned and a huge amount of that is to do with acknowledging uncertainty of of mm. being clear about what we know and what we don't and and you know certainly and, and refusing to be drawn i mean i think that's one of the big issues that i've had to learn is that if you you know do a lot of media stuff like i've done you know you're up being interviewed live and people ask you stuff which you you know is outside your area you know i get asked all the time about yeah. what do you think is going to happen what you know blame for policy do you think this should have been done what do people with the public feel about these things i don't know about any of this stuff and i used to feel before the pandemic that i had to give some sort of answer hmm. and i used to bah, 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 you know you make something up and everything. no no i just say no i'm not going to answer i don't know someone else's job you'll have to ask somebody else and that's it and i just put next question and i got so used to doing this now and I got a, you know, personally, I think I got a bit of a reputation for doing it that I just won't answer questions, and it gets, it gets a, it, you know, it gets a bit of a joke, you know, with the interviewers. They say, "Will you answer that?" No, I'm not going to answer that either. And why don't you ask me something I actually know about? <laughs> I'm not going to say no. And that's been a real lesson, and I think that it's one that I've learned, and I think it, and many other people could learn that as well. One, of the, and, and that's tied up with this issue of 
communication, are you trying to inform or persuade? Are you an advocate for, a, are you trying to help people understand the situation? Or are you an advocate for a policy? Yeah. And it's something that's disappointed me hugely during this pandemic and irritated me is that many scientists have, you know, just felt completely able to go from explaining the science to advocating a policy, but just moving as if this was their right to go from one to the other. And I just think it's wrong. I just it's not our job. It's not my job to say what the policy should be. I don't know. You know, to, for a policy, a public policy involves weighing up every aspect of the decision: the political, the social, the economic, the you know, what people's mental health, and all those sort of things. I can't do all that. That's not me. It's so arrogant to think I could do that and then say, well, what everyone should be doing, or what the the politicians should be doing. Now, I might in other other. Th- if I'm wearing my personal hat on, not my professor, so blah blah blah. But you know, to David Spielberg who lives down in the lives down the road, then I can say what I want. I can vote what I want, and I can say it. But you know, scientists wouldn't go and well, I don't think they'd ever go and say vote for a particular party. So why are they saying you should go and you know this should be the policy? I, I just think I, it's completely inappropriate, and it. it um, it really annoys me, and there's so many, and that's you know, will give an opinion and go from explanation to advocacy just like that. Poof! To me, it's a major, major barrier, and one that one should not. I feel I should, people should be very cautious about crossing. Without possibly, they can say, well, and now I'm speaking purely as an individual. But just because I've got scientific credentials in a particular subject area and a particular job and I'm professor this and I'm blah, 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 it gives me absolutely no right to speak on in terms of general public policy. And you've had some appalling examples. I won't mention names. I completely agree with that. And it has also been my experience, like in a previous life before being a statistician, I used to what's called geopolitics and wrote a book about that, about the United States. And I got invited on, on some TV sets. And in the end, when I was a regular person coming on, on the TV set, sometimes I got asked about questions completely unrelated to the US. Like, for instance, oh, uh, what do you think about what's coming going on in Israel with the Palestinian territories? And I was like, well, but that I don't know, that's not my subject. Plus, it's like a super complicated topic. I'm not going to weigh in on that. But I agree with you that that's definitely the problem, like people getting out of their area of expertise, both because they want to, because they want to advocate for something and they have a broad view of, I don't know, how society should be. And also because they are asked about that by the media. And so what I'm wondering here is that in both our cases, the fact that we didn't go there is based on our personal ethics, which is always kind of a problem to me because if the incentives in the if the macro incentives are not aligned as they seem to be here, then you will have a lot of people who won't do that because they don't like they just don't care, you know, and so they will answer the question, they will go on TV and, and say that and and even if you don't do that that does it really change the situation? Or if not, how could we change that from a more macro level? Well, I mean, that argument is going on all the time on Twitter and et cetera, et cetera, between scientists. There's this COVID, you know, sort of centrist group, which I feel kind of part of, 
who are not being aligned with a policy perspective and they're just trying to explain what's going on. Of course, you can never, I've got my own feelings about what's important and so that's bound to influence the way I talk about things. But in terms of the media coverage, I think, yeah, people get a platform. You go on there and, of course, the media love it. They would love people just to open their big gobs and say something outrageous where this should happen and that's that's how you get headlines. Yeah. You know, it's the times I've been said stupid things, that's when I get the most coverage. So, and I've done it, you know, I've said things I regretted and um, and I've tried to learn to keep my, to take, have less coverage and, you know, not be, yeah, no, not to provide that sort of headline material that people love so much. And that's the media's job. Of course, they're going to do that. They're going to pick on the most outspoken, the most opinionated viewpoint and we just shouldn't provide it. And I think... It's bad communication and it's, I don't think it's ethical. So this is something that the scientific community, I think, has to get a bigger grip on and it has to be a higher perspective issue. Now, it is a problem. We get to climate change because many people working in climate change feel that, you know, quite reasonably. I think that, you know, they should be advocates for particular policies. And in a way, that's fine. But then there should be some way of relabeling what with the job you're doing. You are now representing not just the science, you are representing a, a, an advocacy group or an organisation or a group of people who think the same. This is, and you are ch- putting a different hat on. I think you should physically put a different hat on. You take <laughs> off your sort of academic mortarboard you know, hat and ah. put on a, a you know, baseball cap with a slogan on the front because that's what you're doing. Yeah. And that is a very different perspective. And I think that we need a lot more awareness of that within the scientific community. Hmm. That would actually make for good TV if you change yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Time. yeah. And then you could even argue with yourself. Yeah, exactly. Good idea. What are you saying? Well, yeah. you don't understand anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, such a fascinating topic. It's also related like to, I don't know how that's called, but I would call that a halo effect, you know, of someone, a personality, like, I don't know, a football player, for instance, you trust him. And so if he talks about something else than football, you will tend to trust him, even though it's not at all his area of expertise, you know. Well, Nobel Prize winners are some of the worst. Exactly, yeah. Absolutely awful. Yeah. yeah. Not all of them, but some. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them are doing that. I mean, each time it's the Nobel season in France, it's my game now. I try to notice how the status of that person changes in the in the media. And usually that comes from, like, they before they ask him only about his area of expertise. And then when he becomes a Nobel Prize, they ask him about anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always my game, although it's not... I mean, it shouldn't be that funny. <laughs> like I should, there shouldn't be so many examples of, of people doing yeah, that. exactly. So let's go back to what you're doing. I'm wondering if you know who is interested in, in the work you're doing, you know, in what you're saying, and who you would like to be interested in what you're saying, but can't reach yet, but would like to. Oh, that's interesting, because, um, you know, trying to do our best, you know, I wrote this book, Art of Statistics, we've got a book, COVID by Numbers, coming yeah. out. Uh, by Anthony Masters and myself, you know, which tries to explain the stats without taking an advocacy perspective. And I guess, you know, I just love the whole level of argument to be raised up, you know, and that includes everybody. That's school kids, that's uh, people out there reading ordinary newspapers, it's my family, that's professionals, that's the rest of the scientific community, that's 
policymakers, that's politicians. So, I mean, what we're talking about is sort of data literacy broadly, these ideas of what we can learn from data, and they're generic. You know, they're illiteracy. I like the, I like using the term literacy because that suggests its breadth and its importance. And, and I really genuinely believe that. So, you know, many people now are really thinking about how this can be brought more into general educational system, but also the public education. Of course, it's not just a matter of education. I'm, I'm not going to fall into that, you know, simplistic you know, what it's called, the deficit model approach. Oh, if only everybody had education, then they would understand and people wouldn't be subject to misinformation and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm not naive enough to think that it's just a matter of informing people properly and educating them. And of course not. These are politically contested issues. Um, there's a massive role, importance of misinformation, which is, and people's acceptance of that and the acceptance of, is so much more than just the information it's to do with identifying with particular tribal with tribes of communities and it's to do with bubbles of information passing between particular groups of people that may feel separate from authorities mistrusting authorities so so much more to do with trust and so on and so these are all very complex issues and it's not just a matter of education however you do need good information. That's is like it's it's not a sufficient condition, but it is an absolutely necessary condition that there is a bedrock of good, uh, trustworthy information out there. Um, because you can't without that, you can't even start. And that I always go on about this. There's the philosopher Honora O'Neill, who a philosopher of Kant, who's written about trust and trustworthiness, and she had this brilliant insight where she says that all the you know, we experts. We want to be trusted, don't we? You know, we, every we want. You know, our conversation is about. Um, oh, of course, we're good, and and how can we um, get other people to trust us and listen to us and improve them? And she just says that's completely wrong. You know, this our whole basis of discussion at the moment is just wrong. It's inappropriate. Um, what we need to do, and this is presumably due to her study of Kant and duty ethics or whatever, not that I've ever read any Kant, but um, is that we? It's on the onus upon us to demonstrate trustworthiness. And we should look inside ourselves and look at why are we trying to do what we're doing? What are we trying to do? Are we being trustworthiness? As an absolute prerequisite, because if we don't, if we're not being trustworthy, why should anyone trust us? You know, we don't deserve it. We just don't deserve it. So my perspective is much more now, rather on, on you know, almost educating people out there, perspective is now much more on educating the communicators the people doing the and, and they're the target of my effort, in a sense, of the people doing the communication to try to get them to be more trustworthy. And that means you know, all the things we're talking about: being honest, trying to inform people rather than trying to persuade them of something, of being open about uncertainties, and so on. And so, those are the groups I'm interested in. And uh, whether it's people communicating health information, or whether it's people within government. My big interest now is in modelers, complex modelers, increasingly Bayesian modelling. What is an appropriate way to communicate the outputs of that, both to the general public and to other, to politicians and to policymakers to see what to make of it? So that, it seems to me, is where my two areas of interest, the more technical modelling part and the communication part, are now coming together as a absolutely vital perspective and of course the same holds in climate and so on we do all everyone does all this fancy stuff okay what is a trustworthy way to communicate that 
to people. That isn't to do with just trying to get them to think the way you want them to think. That isn't just a way to try to get you the policy you believe is right into practice. That actually is trustworthy. And the stuff we're writing now is all about, you know, what does trustworthy communication mean? And the inch and the people we're either, you know, trying to work with on are on if you're doing complex modeling, whether Bayesian or not, often now within COVID, it's almost all Bayesian, the stuff that's going on, and then communicating that. And COVID's shown that, you know, even you can take now enormously sophisticated models being fit in STAN and whatever, and for modeling, for example, you know, infections in the population and so on. And then they have to be communicated to everybody, to the media, to all the stakeholders, to the general public, to the policymakers, to, you know, within government. They're all having to take this information. And its trustworthiness is absolutely vital. And that's why, you know, things like, you know, can you believe... So, okay, obviously one should produce some sort of interval around any estimate, and you should be doing... Uh, sensitivity analysis for different scenarios and all of that. But, you know, even beyond that, can you actually believe how good is the model that you're using? It's all dependent still on the model you've got, and the models are grossly inadequate. We know that, especially of a pandemic. They're hopelessly inadequate. They're, you know, they're better than nothing. They're as good as you can do, maybe. But And my example for that is um, in the UK, you're estimating R, the reproduction number, RT, what's going on at the moment, how many, on average, how many people is, is somebody who's infected going on to infect, sitting around one at the moment. And there's eight different teams doing that in the UK at the moment, and they all get together on a committee, SPIM, and uh, they pool their result, results and come up with some consensus value for R that is then published. But very nicely, they also, they do publish their individual estimates with the intervals. They don't even overlap these intervals. You've got eight numbers. Some of the intervals overlap. Lots of them don't overlap at all. Now, you know, what does that say? They're using, they're estimate, trying to estimate the same quantity essentially from the same data pretty well. They use, some of these different, but they've all got different models. What it shows for me is the absolute real value of having multiple independent teams. That's really. What if there are only one of those people with their tight interval on a, on a number? This it would be absurd. So it's great that there's multiple teams. What it shows as well is the fact that the intervals don't overlap in largely um, shows that these intervals are grossly gross underestimates of the true uncertainties because they're within models model uh, uncertainty estimates. Each conditional on the model being true, and you know the model isn't true. <laughs> So it's only by having this ensemble of, like in climate as well, an ensemble of multiple models from independent teams that you get some idea of what the real uncertainties are. And even those are inadequate because all those models are wrong. So, but they do give a much better idea of it. And that, and that range, that sort of uncertainty is then incorporated in what's reported publicly. So this process, which is being carried out almost in public and certainly being reported rather well, you know, is extraordinary, I think, insight into, you know, the imperfect way in which science is carried out, but actually is doing, they're doing their best. And it's a brilliant insight, I think, into the real dangers of believing the numbers that come out of your model and the intervals that come out of your model, because they're wrong and they're always too narrow and they're probably biased. <laughs> you, you say that and I, I have a video of that and I, I take that personally. So 
<laughs> people don't the hearing don't see that but <laughs> yeah yeah i don't mean you personally. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, know. I was using <laughs> i was using you in a slightly general sense yeah though, <laughs> thank you i'm relieved <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not jabbing you. Jabbing you. You are you, doing something you, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> this is outrageous. <laughs> no, because I've done all that. You know, we developed yeah. the Bugs program. You know, we are so proud of of the fact that we could incorporate. You know, using MCMC, you get a much better expression of within model uncertainty because you in, uh, incorporate the uncertainty about all the parameters. All the parameters, all at once, is all incorporated. But the uncertainty about the structure of the model is not incorporated. Yeah. It's still conditional on the structure of the model. Yeah. No, okay. I agree with that. And that's, that's always the, like what, what we told before, threading that needle between, yeah, that's useful, but that's not, like, like it's not completely trustworthy and you have to navigate these, yeah. these waters, uh, which are like, it's hard, but like it's, uh, it's reality. The first lesson before you can be honest with, the public or, or stakeholders or audiences, you have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. 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 And exactly. that, that's the most difficult thing of all. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not not becoming nihilistic in the in the process. So. No, no. And you've got to admit your your own biases. I mean, I'm biased. I know I've got my interests and my sort of things about what I think are important about COVID or whatever. And I I do focus on those in what I talk about. So Yeah. So that's why in it's actually also something that came out of all these COVID crises, at least in France, is that you shouldn't like put all your trust in any one scientist, but like much rather look at the at the whole consensus of the whole community of, of scientists. Yeah, uh, yeah, ensemble modeling of sciences. Yeah, scientists. Think, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then it's like, it's related to wisdom of crowds, right? Yeah, and yeah. It's just yeah. like this principle. Okay, time is flying by and I have one question to to ask you, like, related to what you said at the beginning, because you said that um, probabilities don't exist. And so I want you to, to explain that a bit, like, what do you mean by, for instance, the, the probability of getting cancer, or, I don't know, of getting liver cancer yeah. doesn't exist, because it seems to me that it's something really concrete and, and that you can... Mm. That's, that, that's such a really good example, because, you know, a lot of the work we do in our team are to do with probabilities of not so much of getting cancer but of the consequences of cancer mm -hmm. in terms of you know die, when you might die or whatever like that now i think it's very useful i mean the pro the, the phrase probability does not exist because comes from definetti's theory of probability from about page two or something like that so it's the absolute fundamental rule and um i think we need to be clear about that i think what i mean is that of course uncertainty exists and because you know, we don't know what's going to happen now of course, you can get down to every level about this. I mean, is actually things are things actually predetermined? Is it just we, the uncertainty? Is it uncertainty about God's will? And it's one of the nice things about having a subjective point of view is that I don't have to argue about whether it's predetermined whether I will get liver cancer or not. Or, you know, whether it's God's will or whether it's there's some genuine randomness in terms of the mutations of the cells dividing and things like that. Um, it doesn't matter actually because. The crucial thing is that there is no number out there and every judgment, every number I assessed and every magnitude I assess for this is a judgment based on conditional on my current knowledge. So let's take, you know, the chance I'll get liver cancer. I mean, maybe I've got it already is the first thing. So I may very well have it already, but I just don't know. 
So in that sense, there's a lot of epistemic uncertainty about that. What does this number mean? You know, I could look at, you know, men my age and how many go on to get to liver cancer. And then I could look at men my age and the amount I drink and how many go on to get. So I could endlessly refine the group of people I was in and end up with a different sort of proportion out of that. And, you know, that means I might think I'm kind of approaching some sort of true probability. Um, but I'm never going to get there, of course, because, you know, who knows? As I said, maybe I've got it already. And so, you know, and if I knew that, then there probably would be one. So there's, you know, our uncertainty is about the uncertainty of not only, you know, possible events in the future that are absolutely unpredictable, but of course, what we don't know about the situation. My genes, we don't know, and all these things. So that's why when we write our software, which produces risk estimates, risk assessments for individuals about their consequences of their cancer, we never say it's your risk. Never say it's this woman's risk of breast cancer. It is not this woman's risk. It's the, what we would expect to happen in 100 people who matched them with these criteria. So all you're doing is, it's not personalized, it's stratified. You're just embedding somebody, yourself or somebody else, into a group of similar people, in other words, that ticked the same 10 boxes, and then say, what would we expect to happen to them? It's not this in any individual's risk, which who knows? First of all, you don't know it, but I don't even think it's there. It's not something that you can't open somebody up and find their risk somewhere. It's something that's, it's a totally virtual quantity that I, you know, philosophically, some people think that there are some true probabilities there, you know, propensities, this idea of that there's some true objective propensity there that we're trying to get to. I think that's, I don't like that philosophical theory at all. It's it's totally undecidable. Where are these things? If people want to think that's fine, no, I don't find it useful at all. But I much prefer the idea that there is no true probability. Um, all we're doing is trying to get essentially reasonable betting odds by incorporating more and more information. I had never thought about that that way. So it's interesting. Uh, so to me, it sounds like you're saying that it's not only a problem that we don't have enough information to get to the the individual probability of getting the liver of getting liver cancer. It's that that individual probability doesn't exist really at the it doesn't it's not actually there. Yeah. So, at the individual scale of yeah. me because I'm like kind of unique among unique, all the unique, different yeah. person who've been your life. So it's it's almost a it's a it's a question without an answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not it's almost a pointless question to ask. Now as I said, some people do are still sticking to this old idea that there is some true propensity if we knew anyway, but that re- reminds me you know, too much for sort of Laplace's demon idea, if only we knew enough. Yeah. Okay, we couldn't get it to certainty, but we could know enough to actually know the number which was the true probability of this happening. And in other words, we're reducing it to something that's analogous to a, a determined probability, I think. It's, hmm. it's it's so speculative, and it's so undecidable, it's so unmeasurable, I don't see the point of it. You can invent it. It's like, but it's, it's as, it, you might as well th- talk about it being God's will, you know, really. I, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. it's, it's, it's got about the same measure of reality too <laughs> yeah the best thing to do is like the, the closest you can get to that is to take people in the same group like yes kind and, of and the and same the, features although yeah. that has its limitation too because it's kind of deterministic but what i like about this what, what the challenge is for people working in our area producing software for the general public is that these general philosophical ideas about what is probability what is risk you know what does it mean we have to actually make them concrete in software 
and language for general people to understand the fact that we don't know what's going to happen to you. And we're not going to, we don't, we never use the words chance, probability, none of those. Those words are totally banned from anything we do. It's all to do with what, what we, our language is always, well, you know, you've ticked these boxes. We don't know what's going to happen to you. You're unique. Um, but out of 100 people like you in these features, this is what we'd expect to happen. Okay. Yeah. And that's it. That's all we can say. And um, we actually have to actually actively work to decrease trust, in a sense, in these systems. Because otherwise people start believing them as if they're some kind of oracles at an individual level. Hmm. It's really dangerous. Yeah. We've got to constantly remind people this only takes into account certain bits of information. Everyone's unique. There's always extra factors that will be there that are not being looked at. And this is the same for any, any system in any situation. Hmm. There's always stuff that is not, cannot be incorporated in a model. Models are always inadequate, and people need to be aware of that. So these general philosophical ideas that we've been talking about, what I like about our work is that we're having to make them absolutely concrete and choose the very words in each language, because our stuff's being translated endlessly, um, you know, to make them concrete so that people are not misled into over-believing the software. Yeah, and that framing, like with the out of 100 people with your same features, this is what we would expect. I like that because it's a good way to print that in, into people's brain that uh, there are unknowns in the model. It's yeah, not, exactly. It's can, I, can I tell you, we then did interviews with people to find out what they understood about this. And most people are fine about it. And then can you guess what some people said? They said, oh, I don't believe these numbers. They're only based on 100 people. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, No. No, you know, and again, they thought this is what had actually happened to a hundred people like you. Yeah. No, this is a model basically. It's a metaphor of what we'd expect to happen to a future hundred people with 10,000 people. This is all basic. So I, it's so, and that was, you know, then we realized it's our fault. It's our yeah. fault if they think that this is a description of what happened to a hundred people and therefore, and so they were being very sophisticated in a way, realizing there would be a lot of sampling error around that. So it's not until you talk to people and listen, you realize the, in a sense, the misunderstandings that people might, might quite reasonably have. And if they do, it's our failure. Hmm. Yeah, this is all fascinating. So I have, I, I think we're, we can, we can call it a show, but I have like every guest, I ask them the same two questions at the end of the show, because that way, as always, as I always say, the most important is not one given answer, but the distribution of answers. And so the first one for you is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Oh God. Oh, I don't know. I can, I, can this be one of the ones I say, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> it's not, not my job because maybe it would, it would be my job. Oh, I don't know. Ah, uh, oh, you'll have to cut this bit. I don't sure if I solve problems. I don't solve problems, I think. I think that's why I'm finding this so difficult. Well, I'm not trying to the, solve The point of the question is to be difficult. I'm trying to learn, what I'd like to do is improve my skills. Mm. I'd like to improve my skills at communication. And I guess that's all I'd like to, to be able to do. Because I'm a, I'm a practitioner rather than a problem either rather than a problem solver hmm, yeah but it's funny because it seems to me that like in almost all of your answers about that it's really something that you are trying to improve yourself doing that or you are trying to 
yeah, pick up these skills at communicating and so on. But I, I'm wondering if also the other, the, there is a, a reciprocal part, if you want, like, are there some skills that you are trying to instill in people when you're teaching how to reason under uncertainty? Okay, so I could say that if I really had unlimited time resources, I would want to uh, help everybody, in a sense, develop greater literacy about dealing with information okay. and in particular being able to counter misinformation i actually think the the rise of misinformation and social media bubbles is one of the hugest risks to society i think it's a massively dangerous and i haven't got any simple solutions to that but i i kind of do believe that this should be faced ability to critique information and to know understand the ways in which information can be manipulated really should be an integral part of an education system. Yeah. Yeah. Doing that methodically, you mean like not just yeah. like rejecting yeah. everything for no reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, that's not, of course, that's not in any way the solution. But again, it's these, you need to, it's a basis for at least building on. Yeah. Uh, second question. If you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, Who would it be? Oh, that's easy. That's easy. Frank Ramsey. Absolutely no doubt at all. I did. A, I was really pleased to do a radio program about him on, on Radio 4 recently. So, um, And he's got, you know, got a wonderful biography out. And so he was quite extraordinary. You know, he died aged 26, essentially having first one to really formulate the ideas of subjective probability and decision-making. But, but not just that. He was just a genius. Wittgenstein's PhD supervisor of heaven's sakes, which must have, you know, he was just extraordinary. And his loss, his early death when he was 26, is one of the biggest losses to not the UK, but the world in terms of intellectual ability. If he'd lived just another year, you know, if he hadn't died, then Alan Turing was going to come up to his... Next year, Alan Turing came to King's College and would have been supervised by Frank Ramsey. <laughs> the two of them together would have revolutionized computing, changed the course of the Second World War, I'm sure. So definitely him. But the other thing, of course, I mean, he was a wonderful guy, huge, with a huge belly laugh, great fun, you know, played tennis, went on walks, lots of sex. You know, he was just great, man. Um, yeah. Huge fun. And... Uh, He, he wasn't some, you know, desiccated intellectual. He was a real all-round human being, you know, badly dressed, um, you know, loved music, liked parties. I would love to have, um, to just to know him. Yeah. yeah, a great person to have dinner with. Huge human being, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, is there a paper or a book, something like that, that we can refer people to? Oh, oh just his, his, his Frank Ramsey's biography. Okay. The latest biography where she was, I was lucky enough to share the radio program or the, the radio program that I've got on, did on Brief Lives uh, a few months ago. And it was very nice to get, you know, nobody, the people making the radio program, which is about famous people, had never heard of Frank Ramsey. Mm -hmm. So it was a great chance to, to bring him to a more, to a wider audience. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, is that podcastable? Because I... I, I would yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's available as a podcast, yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome. So we can put a link into it, yeah. Oh, yeah, I definitely put a link in, in the show notes about that and listen to that. That's great. It's perfect for my nerd content. Yeah, great. <laughs> okay, before letting you go, I have to add one question because you do so many things. What are, which projects are you most excited about for the coming month? Maybe big, like, 
still being a loop champion i don't know <laughs> no yeah no i i need to be i need to defend my title at some point that was um, an interesting an interesting <laughs> thing oh i don't know oh my coming month sorting out my family photographs i think is my big project that i'm going to have a go at um a lifetime of of <laughs> <laughs> old photographs what do you do in negatives now does anyone care about negatives Ooh, you know yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff so you know i got 60 years of photographs to try to sort out oh my. my job yeah. it's quite a lot yeah <laughs> well good project <laughs> david thanks a lot for for coming on, on on the show as expected that was a fascinating conversation i i love these topics uh, so much thanks a lot for doing all the the work you're doing about um like just Understanding risk and uncertainty, I, I think it's so useful for the general public, especially with the the period we're we're living. And as you're saying, I'm quite optimistic that it will actually, in the end, it will have been a chance to to live through that because well, we all probably collectively will be more equipped to deal with the with science scientific uncertainty in in the future. So, as usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, David, for taking the time and being on this show. No, thanks so much. It's been a, a pleasure. As you can tell, you know, I'd just go on for hours if you let me. So um, yeah, thanks, for giving, <laughs> thanks for giving me the chance to ramble on for a little while. <laughs> you bet. You can, you can come ramble on anytime <laughs> you want. Next time we'll do that in a pub though. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, then you get all the bad language. Yeah. Exactly. That's perfect. That's what I come from. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. See you, David. Okay, cheers then. Bye. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbasedstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.